0: It's important to build the framework, right? I mean, because, I mean, if you were raised in that tradition and have not deconstructed it and reconstructed something totally different, it feels like you are asking somebody to, like, stop breathing the oxygen that they breathe every single day, right? This is the framework of their lives, the framework of their way they see their family, their church, their community, their worldview, their politics. Um, And so it is challenging, um, and that's why... You know, when you start to have these conversations with people who've never really dealt with it, with, besides being informed by whatever tribal media outlet they go to, it, it you're all right. We actually have a cognitive natural response to this is called fight, flight, or freeze, <laughs> right? go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Becca McNeil. She is a reporter with her work appearing in Relevant, Christianity Today, the San Antonio Current, the Public Justice Review, and Sojourners. She has a new book, Bring Up Kids When Your Church Lets Them Down. Becca, welcome to the conversation.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: So, uh, of course, anytime we have somebody from the state of Texas on, we have to ask how things are in the old republic. <laughs>
1: i just saw somebody's facebook the other day had a an icon of the american flag with the little section cut out that makes you can make the texas flag out of this one little section of it i was like my gosh it's the whole thing in an icon isn't it um that is how it is down here most of the time um it's you know we were we've been having the conversation lately about how how diverse the state really is, in terms of its uh, its actual people, and yet how all of its political mechanisms and institutions—I would include a lot of churches in that—are uh, mechanically kind of uh, locked down. So you don't you don't see so much of that. It's very functionally. Um, driving harder and harder and harder to the right and it seems like it's it's a train on a track in that regard meanwhile there's a whole lot of people in the state who are just feeling pretty um like they're stuck on a runaway train it <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> with no access to the, to the engine
0: room the the good news is uh, we can tell you, Becca, is there are other states in in the union uh, and we'll gladly welcome you. but at the same time, I think Texas might be a microcosm of the country, let alone the church, you know um, mm-hmm. if you look at the last couple of election cycles, this very traditional red state, right red, you know representing yeah. more conservative politics um seems to be coming more purple, but at the same time, um it doesn't, you know right. so how 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 do how do Texas residents, uh, you know, wrestle with, with that shift? And I mean, like I said, it, it does seem to represent many of our churches today.
1: It does. And I think what you're seeing is a difference between demographics and power and I that not to sound, I hope, hopefully your audience doesn't mind if I sound too Marxist for a minute, but, um, I don't, I mean that in the most, like the people who are running things have had all the time in the world to set them up to continue running that way, no matter what, how the demographics change. And so, and I think that goes for our churches as well. You'll have younger folks in the church who, whose minds are changing, whose hearts are changing who have a more diverse group of people who they love or issues that matter to them. But when they, there's not really space in the institution for that. And the difference is that it's super easy to just stop going to church. You don't have to like move. (laughs) So I think that, I mean, (laughs) we talk all the time about like, well, has the ship sailed on Texas? Do we need to just, you know, pack it in? And then of course you have the people who are like, no, you can't leave because we need people to stay in the fight and whatnot. And I honest, I have the honest conversation with myself of, yeah, but is the fight, is it done? Like has has one side declared victory here? And um, I asked that question about the church too and which is actually kind of why I wrote a book because I had to ask the question of, am I one of those people who it's just easier for me to stop going to church and cut that, that group of people or that complication out of my life? Or is there something in there that I want to fight for? Or is there some expression of it that, actually does uh embody god in the way i believe that god is so that's that's kind of the journey Hmm.
0: yeah i like to consider myself to be a a cynical optimist (laughs) (laughs) you know yes i know the feeling I, i i feel like here's the conclusion i've come to uh we are at the end of Empire Strikes Back, or for my Lord of the Rings fans, we are at the end of the Two Towers, right? It, uh-huh. it, this is the moment for where a lot of people, where it seems like uh, derision and division is is going to win the day. Um, but a part of me still holds out hope that, like, this is the darkest time, and something bright and new is on the horizon, especially for the church. You know, yeah. I know we were talking about pre-record that you know, history has a tendency to, to rhyme, you know, we, <laughs> yes. we've been we've been here before and the church has figured out a new path. Now, the sad part of that is what we have conceptually known as the institution of the church uh, as it stands today is most likely going to uh, change radically uh, as if it is, already hasn't been changing radically, but it will change radically in our own lifetime and experience versus the that gradual change that we've seen over time that we you know were the beneficiaries of. So in a sense we're kind of making whatever that new history is going to be. So a part of me wants to be very optimistic about that um which if anybody knows me they're like wow, you actually said something positive.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Um yeah, and I would add uh, the the MCU corollary to the to your nerd trilogy here is the the scene in Endgame where they uh you know spoiler alert where captain america's like laying on the battlefield and all of a sudden all of dr strange's teleportals show up very similar (laughs) um but yeah i i want to i'm with you i want to be optimistic i want to say that wherever something has gone past the point where you can reform it, that you can create something new and that's good. And the new thing, you know, is, is an adventure all its own. That's not guaranteed. I think that we look at history and we see these, these examples because there's still people living on earth and people find a way to, You know, like survival is optimistic. Um, We keep having children. We keep, you know, getting married. We keep doing all the things. And so we're going to keep making good meals and picking out clothes that we like and gathering in ways that we like and building institutions that uh, meet our needs. And so I do think there's, yeah, all of history points to the fact that we're going to keep doing that, whether or not the an any version of an institutional Christian church is part of that uh is seems much more uh, up in the air to me because it's not you know we've had empires that rise and fall we have all of you know there's there's less, nobody is sticking around saying, and and we, I think as Christians for a long time, the narrative has been that God is going to preserve this, that God is going to make sure that the church always prevails. And, and I think we very similar to probably how Israel was thinking about a Messiah have a kind of a specific way that we think that's going to look. And I just am not as convinced that we're right, or that, you know, that those of ah those in the Christian community who believe that it's always going to look like pastors and pulpits and um congregations of somewhere between two hundred and twenty thousand. and that sort of thing is going to continue. And our denominations, as we've set them up, are, I mean no no offense I know this is um there's a denomination in the name but I I mean that's really not a guaranteed thing. So anyway, I I'll, I agree with you that I hope something good is coming because I do think human beings just naturally do things that we think are good. <laughs> we pursue what we think is good and true and beautiful, but I there's a lot stacked against those who want to see the church survive as a more welcoming, more inclusive version of itself.
0: Hmm. It kind of begs the question is was was the church ever intended to be this thing that we created? You know, when you mm-hmm. look at the church in its purest form, which found in the expression of first couple chapters of of the Book of Acts, it's like, oh, well, maybe not. Like, wait, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that stinks yeah. because obviously, you know, my livelihood is uh, wrapped up in in being a part of a denominational organization. My livelihood before this was wrapped up in a local congregation, paying my salary and my housing allowance and my retirement and things of that mm-hmm. nature, and you know, so to, to a certain extent, I wonder if preservation is continuing to be uh, maintained by those who, um, you know, for, for good or for ill or for out of necessities, livelihood is wrapped up in that, um, uh. that <laughs> experience, which, you know, again, uh, that's most of our audience and something that I think a lot of us are wrestling with. I mean, I know that it's it's so funny. It's like, you make notes for an interview and then we're like, we're way off, but this is great. Um, You know, uh, I think many folks listening to this have been asking that question for longer than we realize and are preparing themselves to do something else and and still live into their vocational sense of calling, um, which is, uh, I mean, good for them and applause for them. And it's difficult and uh, we're not faulting anybody who wants to continue to maintain whatever they're doing for their longevity, their career. That's not what we're saying at all. It's just that, you know, institutionalization has a tendency to hold on to, uh, to itself as long as possible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, stability and progress are kind of Opposing forces in a lot of ways, and so if your livelihood is tied up in something, you obviously want stability. And you know, if you are part of, if you're part of the segment of society that is hoping for reformation and change and growth and all that stuff, there's an inherently destabilizing uh, F- presence if you will, in the church. And I think that, that you'll see, you see generational resentment you see, and I'm, you know, I there, I have known so, 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 so many pastors. As I worked in ministry for a while, I worked um, in college ministry. And so we'd get together with a nationwide group, you know, college pastors. Um, and I was actually just talking about this with some friends. There has been an interesting bubbling up of um pastors and you you can maybe this has always been I I just have a you know, I'm thirty eight years old. I don't have a whole lot of history, and this isn't something I've read a lot about, but it has seemed like there is a growing. Um, kind of introspection on the profession, like just a lot of pastors really concerned about pastoral mental health, pastoral well-being. Like there's a, there's kind of a growing sentiment that the profession is in crisis. And I I mean, COVID obviously made that a financial equation as well but even before that i was just hearing a lot of um and then obviously we see all the scandals we see you know leaders rise and fall we see um the both the like moral whoa we i grew up presbyterian and my husband used to joke that if somebody had a failure it meant an affair like that was code you could fail in so many ways and they would be really specific about it like oh they embezzled money or oh they you know abused their position for a real estate deal or whatever but if you had a failure it was code for an affair um but you see all of that and it does just all seem to indicate that that Something is eating at the soul of the church. Uh, And and I am inclined to believe that power and love work in opposition to each other. And we've gotten something structurally wrong. (laughs) That it's like this profession just chews up and spits out so many people.
0: So, maybe listening to the first part of our conversation, I'm going to amend your uh, Marvel Comic Universe illustration from earlier. This is less uh, end game. <laughs> and this is more of like a second or two after the snap in Infinity Wars. So, yeah, that's bleak, but we've got hope. Oh. We've got- We've got our kids to talk about. You've got a new book.
1: <laughs> our kids are going to have to go collect all the infinity
0: stones. <laughs> yes. But I, I, part of me, when I was reading your book, and yes, by the way, I do read the books of our guests that we have on, Um, part of me was like, I wonder if we should retitle this, what kind of church are we passing on to our kids? But oh, the, t- yes. the yeah. title of the book is uh, Bring Up Kids When Church Lets You Down. This is a guidebook for parents as their kids wrestle with difficult questions. And as parents wrestle difficult questions, you wrote... Um, who doesn't crave certainty about parenting? It's offered to us in many ways. Breast is best, back to sleep, say no to drugs, but most parents know that raising kids also undermines everything you thought you knew. Um, walk us back to the conception of this book and what was going on in your, your personal life that you shifted from you know, a good bit of writing around immigration policy and education policy to writing about parenting.
1: Yeah, well, what happened is that I met a bunch of parents In the course of reporting on education especially um and then a lot of disillusioned christians when i was reporting on immigration (laughs) and and then i looked and i was like wow i'm kind of i I, there's a reason when you do an interview as a journalist as you know there's like a before and after like chat when you you turned off the recorder and you're off the record and more and more of those chats. Were people in somewhat of a crisis of what? Either what am I going to do with my kids? I grew up a certain way and I don't want that for them. Or, um, I and I was hearing that a lot around like people who grew up in a very like white flight situation and wanted a more diverse and racially just education for their children, people who wanted were committed to living, um, in cities, but really wanted to make sure that their kids were getting a a good education, people who, whose kids were gay and who were not feeling like, you know, every school was similarly welcoming. And so there was that group. And then when I was reporting on immigration, there was any, any Christian, whose ministry was immigration and and had been usually for a long time because christians have historically been active with refugees and um those in need and then during the trump administration a lot of people who had been enjoying kind of the um support and at least like not being harassed by churches and who'd always gotten donations and volunteers um from from churches, all of a sudden were in this conflicted space. And they were hearing from longtime supporters that, you know, they couldn't they could no longer support this illegal, you know, invasion and stuff like this, and that by being kind to asylum seekers, they were, making deterrent immigration policy less effective. And they were just so frustrated and they were so mad. And I think that it led people working in immigration-based ministries, I think it led a lot of them to crises of faith. Um, I would be surprised if any of them said that they'd made it through the Trump administration without some kind of dark night of the soul moment. And, um, so in those conversations, I started to basically just hear common threads. Uh, and, and then once I'd pieced them all together, it started asking people to go on the record. I really thought, okay, should I pitch this, at, you know, to Christianity today? Should I pitch it to sojourners? What kind of big magazine piece is this? And then I talked about it with a friend and he was like, I think that's more like a book. That doesn't sound it sounds like there's gonna be too much nuance and you're gonna wanna include some of your own story, which is really hard to do in a in journal like straight journalism. So um I pitched it as a book. And what's funny if like first-time authors who are just journalists, not, you know, celebrities or whatever, have a really hard time finding uh, representation and a publisher. But because everyone involved with the book was in this situation in one way or another, people were like, well, I'm invested in making this book happen because I need to to read it or give it to my kids or give it to my, you know, sister or brother who's going through it. So it was so common and so prevalent that um, it kind of became the, I can't believe no one else has written this and people have written other like progressive Christian parenting books and there are like Instagram accounts and podcasts and stuff that address it. But like basically taking what people are calling the deconstruction movement, I don't really call it that, not in my book either. But taking that and saying, okay, but what about the kids and how we structure our families? Um, Basically, it was a conversation that just became a book for many, many people.
0: The white evangelical worldview um, has been pretty clear the last five decades with the the rise of the moral majority and the creating of countless organizations such as Focus on the Family, uh, along with numerous publishing houses. He wrote, Many cultures and religions today didn't need evangelical culture warriors to convince them marriage was between a man and a woman for life, and that children were to obey their parents. Authoritarianism isn't unique to any religious group, but white evangelical guys got the book deals, policy wins, and pulpits. Why is it important to understand those facts for entering into this conversation about parenting?
1: Um which set? Because there's the <laughs> the the first set of facts is that authoritarianism is kind of a human thing. And then the second set of facts being that our um the white patriarchal kind of evangelical voice has had a huge role in shaping our entire culture, the United States, there's been several people who've been like, well, your book sounds cool. I didn't really grow up in the church. And I was like, well, the church is still let you down (laughs) because you're here in the United States talking to me. Um, because the, because of that, because of all the book deals and the pulpits and the celebrity surrounding and the influence surrounding these guys. Um, so, I don't know which of those sets of (laughs) conditions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, you talk about like, you can't separate and give you a chance to answer that question in a second, but you can't separate it, but like helping people recognize that even though you didn't grow up in the church, like the church totally influenced things like uh, what you saw on television, what you read in comic books, uh, what was approved uh, for records, because it was typically white evangelicals that were pushing for censorship and for control of what was happening on television. So yeah, even though you didn't grow up in the church, the church influenced your entertainment and understanding of what family was and what parenting was more than you probably realize.
1: Yeah, that's okay. So that is like, (laughs) aside from me shamelessly trying to sell my book to a broader audience, um, (laughs) it is a very true thing. Because, I mean, the the fact that we have presidents who feel the need to even give lip service to a religion in order to be electable is just in a pluralist society where you are free to be Muslim, you're free to be agnostic or atheist, you're free to be Wiccan, and yet we're not going to elect a practicing Wiccan anytime soon. (laughs) And so that just tells you, like, it's kind of goes back again to that first question of like the difference between the demographic and the train that we're on. And I think that there's, there could be a world in which we elect an atheist, like a open atheist, or we have more um, elected people in office who are of diverse and minority faiths. You know, we'll see that on the rise maybe, but there's still the fact that there's been structures and things that have been built for the last 200 plus years that were built with a not, I wouldn't even say like Oh, we built this in line with God's principles. There are people who would like the Christian nationalist argument is that it was all built, you know, to to align with God's way. That's not true. It's not historically accurate, but it does represent the ends and desires and morals and beliefs of a very homogeneous group of people making the decisions for a more diverse and getting more diverse all the time group of people and so i i don't i think the fact that like my kids are coming my kids are celebrating christmas right now in their public school and we have god bless america on the coins and that yes that's civic religion but like it it doesn't say you know yahweh bless america it's there it's civic religion that more people can participate in There's a push to make it more specifically evangelical, obviously. But it was never, I don't think we should kid ourselves that it was ever, like, super inclusive. And so I think in that respect, we're all kind of making our way in the waspy version of America. It's just like how how much down to the studs are we gonna strip it before we decide to say like, okay, let's start putting stuff back together. And that's the big debate between the like Nicole Hannah Joneses of the world and the um Ted Cruz's of the world. <laughs> you know, there's the people saying that nope, there's stuff built into the foundations that are causing us problems. And I would argue that those same things got built into our churches and the way our seminaries teach and the way that just wisdom is generally handed down is like, oh, well, this is just the way things are, folk wisdom, et cetera. And there's people who would argue that there's, there's problems baked into that. And then there's people who argue that we have strayed from that. We've strayed from what was actually pure and good and that um, it's actually things like feminism and the sexual revolution and abortion and whatnot that have carried us away from those um original structures and that those were good things and we should get back to them. So man, talk about going far away from your question. That was a lot. You can edit out whatever whatever <laughs> what was what just I mean? straight ramble.
0: We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Christian Healthcare Ministries. You want to create a strong Christian family that will uphold one another through thick and thin. What if healthcare worked the same way? With Christian Healthcare Ministries, budget-friendly, compassionate care is within your reach. CHM empowers you to pursue excellence in healthcare without added stress or the need to cut corners. Whether you're looking for a comprehensive maternity program or the flexibility to choose your own providers, CHM has options to fit your family's specific needs. As the nation's first and longest-serving health-cost-sharing ministry, you can rest assured knowing that you are making a difference in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Plus, you'll receive all the faith-based support of joining the larger CHM family. Encouragement and spiritual resources created for you and your little ones is just the beginning. Sounds different? It's by design. Join hundreds of thousands of members and discover the biblical solutions to your health care costs. To learn more, visit chministries.org.
1: Since 2016, CBF has brought episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast
0: It's important to build the framework, right? I mean, because, I mean, if you were raised in that tradition and have not deconstructed it and reconstructed something totally different, it feels like you are asking somebody to like stop breathing the oxygen that they breathe every single day, right? This is the framework of their lives, the framework of their way they see their family, their church, their community, their worldview, their politics. Um, and so it is challenging. Um, and that's why... You know, when you start to have these conversations with people who've never really dealt with it with besides being informed by whatever tribal media outlet they go to, it, it you are we actually have a cognitive natural response to this is called fight, flight or freeze, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are, yeah. Uh, and and this is why we are so combative around these things because. Um, You know, cognitive psychologists have said that, like, it's actually our body's defense mechanism. We're trying to survive because this is a perceived threat. So this is why it's so difficult for people to talk about these things and for people to deconstruct these things and why some people, if not most people, would rather just settle into what they already believe because it's much more comfortable. It doesn't feel like it's causing them anxiety uh, to do such a thing. Um, Yeah. The The fact of the matter is that that evangelical culture war mentality um, that you and I were, were raised in doesn't work for this generation. Uh, the black and white answers, the platitudes from authoritarian positions just doesn't cut it. And this generation was raised by millennials and Gen Xers that have greater access to resources and knowledge than than ever before. So as a result, why does that make parenting so difficult and so challenging today?
1: Yeah. I think all the time about like, my parents did this without Google. That is mind boggling (laughs) at times because I just think of how much time I spend reading differing opinions or, you know, comparing research on stuff that affects my kids, whether it is um food choices or preschool choices or different learning. I mean, I think about the fact that my parents in some ways, like the task of the millennial and Gen X parent, like the people who are parenting now who have, and I say parenting who have children at home ages zero to 18, let's say is that we are like trying to filter through this barrage of information and figure out what's true, what's helpful, et cetera. And our parents were more like, like archaeologists or whatever. Like they were stomping around trying to like find something. And I think that when they would find something and my parents found James Dobson and like they, that's, I, I, That's kind of an off-the-cuff analogy. That's probably not perfect because it was coming to them and it was being pumped to them, but they had, they didn't have the internet. They had church. And so they, when somebody gave my parents a parenting book, it became this just, they devoured it. Whereas I might be skimming 12 research articles from secular point of view and contrasting that with you know a Brene Brown book and a Tina Payne Bryson book and you know have just so much information my mom had whatever was on the church book table and it's not that she couldn't have gone further but that was where she to go further would have been extremely time consuming and she was raising four children and so I Like she was clinging to that, like a lifeline and her task was just to find something cohesive and coherent to, to build a family ethic. Mine is to sort through all the noise. And so I think that when you look at just those two parenting experiences of course it's going to be different. (laughs) And the, the culture of people who were just raised with tons and tons and tons of dissenting opinions. And we're seeing a reversal of that in some ways, like the echo chambering and people trying to kind of return to that. But I also think that the people you see who like drive a lot of that on social media and whatnot are that generation who is just used to going to a predictable well to draw water rather than you know turning on every faucet in the house and seeing what comes out and so i i really do think that and there's a lot of conversation right now about like trustworthiness and how that's been manipulated, and it really is a huge challenge. But I think that the reason it was so black and white for our parents is because they just didn't have access to tons of shades of gray. To be a shade of gray, you had to be a little bit defiant, and not everybody has that temperament. And all of the institutions at the time were very, they they were benefiting from that. And we're seeing that that is always kind of back to the thing about the human tendency to become authoritarian, the human tendency to become tribal or to build something that gives us more power. I think you see Facebook, which starts as this, like, incredibly democratic, uh, little d democratic, everybody's opinions and just sharing of information, and then you see, like, Money and power and things get involved, and it starts to do the like. The people are more valuable to me when they are all agreeing on something, and I can sell them one product rather than having to like navigate a thousand different shades of gray. And so, you see those two things pulling at each other. But I think that for our parents in the culture wars to be anything other than loyal to black or loyal to white, you had to be kind of a contrarian and that's asking a lot of people who are also trying not to kill their children.
0: Um racism, LGBTQ, gender identity, culpability and war and violence, police brutality, white supremacy are are just the tip of the iceberg of questions that children and students are wrestling with today. Um on average, how do you think most churches are are dealing with these questions, and why would you grade them that way on their way of dealing with these questions?
1: <laughs> uh, I would give them an incomplete. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we were in kindergarten when we would get like we yeah. were we we're not going to get enough. We were just getting yeah. satisfactory. Needs uh, improvement. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um I mean I haven't been to every church in the country I I truly I don't think I'm the right person I don't know if any of us are the right person to be like well here's my indictment on every single church and how it's dealing with the concerns being brought by its people the discourse which is a different d- deal. Like the discourse being batted around in churches, um, everything from denominational stances to, um, you know, the very public handling of things or pastors, endorsement of politicians that, you know, the stuff, there's the fact that there's like thousands of churches in San Antonio. And I don't know, about those little ones that are addressing these issues because it's what their people care about, but there's only 200 people in that congregation, so I'm never going to hear about it, and they're flying below the radar, maybe even of their own denomination because they've just decided to go rogue. Um, So with the full full caveat, and you can tell I know that I'm talking to a bunch of pastors because I'm like you're doing it great. You're the exception for sure. Definitely. (laughs) But, um, on, on the whole, I think that the, the place Christians are publicly staking themselves and the predictability that people have when they go to a church on Sunday and they think they know that they're going to hear and how often they're right. So it's really just like anecdotal and then maybe some maybe some like Pew or even LifeWay research about where people are falling on issues who are self-identified um i think that for a gosh you can edit out my long pause here because I don't know. I look at a lot of mainline and progressive churches and I see a full-throated conversation about the issues that matter to people that are affecting their lives. I see individual pastors taking up specific issues like police brutality or marriage equality or whatever it is. I think that it's just a weird, there's just a weird disconnect between the the reputation of the church and what that's doing to people who might go to those churches. And I would, I mean, if you're talking about the public face of evangelicals, you know, the pastors who are going on Fox news and whatnot, or endorsing Donald Trump or whatever. I mean, I would give it, an F (laughs) I don't know what else to say other than just be honest that like if you're if your discussion of issues is basically tied to politics and towing a political line I don't think you're doing your job as the church that's just not what we're called to do um however when you're talking about more of like the silence and the avoiding of issues that's where I'd say like you know, the churches that fall there and people are frustrated by that. And that's why I'd give it the incomplete because you do hear a lot of people and we've, I mean, I've been part of one of those churches where I was like, just say it, just say something, speak up, you know, you know, this is wrong. Say something. Um, When there's kids being se- like family separation or like when churches didn't say anything about the me too movement and there was definitely times when I was like, okay, the not speaking up is not working for people. Um, And then the, the most perplexing to me is the churches that are speaking up who are taking a stand um, for on the progressive side. And it's not though, like people are necessarily flocking to them. And so there's like, for a pastor looking at this, I realized like, there's this, and I I don't really understand that dynamic of and maybe you do, of like a way to get a giant church is not necessarily to come out and be progressive or to be um, really open or inclusive. Weirdly enough, that's not where people who are looking for a church I don't I don't know what the Why, why pastors get so punished for it?
0: Yeah. I mean, part of that is, um, you know, look up, up until seven months ago was serving in the local church. I'd always served in a denominational role while also serving a local church. The temperature is turned up. So, so high right now, people are on edge. Um, you know, part of that, not to, not to go back to cognitive psychology, but uh, this is just good to my research from my doctoral work right now. Um, there is something to be said that cognitive psychologists believe that when we are in isolation, uh, we lack accountability and empathy. And part of the pandemic of why it, um, it has turned up the temperature to where we are right now when it comes to our political and economic and social division right now is because we were in isolation for so long, not around people who were different from us. And so we formulated our ideas and our thoughts and beliefs on things. And now we think we can just come back and say them in the same way that we've been communicating it online. Right. <laughs> and we realize that we can't, we we can't talk to people the way that we want to talk to people. Like, uh, you know, not to say the former president's name, but like, there's a lot of people who, who think so highly of Donald Trump because he says what he thinks. Well, he has no accountability. There's nobody around him. That is going to say to him, you know, what you said hurt me, um, and and I don't believe that to be true. And when, when we treat each other in the church that way, um, and especially pastors, I know pastors that listen to this that have been proverbially crucified for trying their best to preach gospel-centric texts. That is simply nudging people, not pushing people, but nudging people. Um, to become more inclusive with their thoughts around any of the number of issues that we've talked about. And so I, I think some of it is because the temperature has turned up so high, we lack mm. patience and empathy for one another, um, that we're just waiting to jump down each other's throat. If you don't say something right from the left, you didn't say it and you should have said something, or you went too far from the right and and you pushed me to feel uncomfortable. I, I think that has so much to do with it. Um, I agree. This book isn't um, an answer guide to all the tough questions, but it does also take a hard look at parenting itself. And the book you talk about the struggle of perfectionism writing. So, perfectionism has you working really hard to earn your blessings, constantly moving the goalpost just a little beyond what you can reach. That's the carrot. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there.
1: Yeah, it's. I think perfectionism is baked into the idea of um, a growing economy, scientific progress, um, capitalism, and parenting. When you're talking about parenting as like a national project, project, like we want our kids to have better than we had. This idea that we should always... We can always be getting better, go faster, go harder, go, um, make it, if you have 50 customers, you need to have a hundred next year. And so we we're so used to a world that always moves the goalpost, and we kind of like contentment is kind of a, or grace or patience is all kind of anathema to the American way of doing things. And I think that that is insidious in human relationships, especially the the human relationship of parent to child. And it's, I think it keeps you working. It keeps you, it, the idea of the carrot, because we talk a lot about like, oh, is it the carrot or the stick? And like the stick actually makes contact with the horse. Um, like it's actually like the punishments are actually applied. The carrot, the trick about the carrot is that they can't ever get it. So like you can actually feel the penalties that are like, um, the threats, but the reward, if you get it, then you have it. And, and the only thing that's useful is to keep you wanting it. So it's almost like perfectionism is our, discontent with the status quo um applied to different areas and i i honestly think that as someone who's probably a very like who's progressive politically there's a very real risk of the perfectionism and the um can always be better can always be more pure can always be more blah 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 that mindset following you into your efforts to stop being that way. <laughs> like you could be anybody who's familiar with like reformed theology knows how that downward spiral can happen of like, even my repenting needs repenting of, I think that perfectionism, wherever you aim it, it's that spiral. It's that spiral of, well, if you got here, then you can be better. And just, um, it's anxiety inducing. And none of those things are good when you're trying to create a place for growth and curiosity and belonging and assuring your children that they're loved no matter what. (laughs) All of which science says is really good for their brains and really good for their uh, development. And it's really hard to provide when you don't know what that feels like yourself.
0: How do you imagine this book being used by by churches, and by clergy?
1: <laughs> um well, the the funniest reaction I've gotten to the book so far was when a friend wanted to read the book in a group, like do a group book study with his church. And he, so he took it to his pastor and the pastor just goes, well, I don't like the title. And I, I realize that in this heated up time, when you have people like Kristen Dume and Beth Allison Barr and Jamar Tisby saying, Hey, we have some systemic issues. Uh, and it, it's deeper than just, you know, getting, sending the pastor away to pray and repent for a couple of weeks and bringing him back and restoring him to ministry. Like, we actually have some systemic issues. I get that everyone, pastors especially, are just kind of having, it's kind of an ex time of existential threat churches are struggling. I mean, there, there's a lot going on. And so I do want to say that I, I understand how it feels like it's just coming from every side and it's a constant barrage, like all of the criticism, all of the blame, it feels like the church is being blamed for everything. And, um, so I, I understand the Hesitance when you see a book like that to just be like, Oh, I just can't right now with all of the criticism. And. I. Am hoping that those who have a strong stomach. That hopefully comes from a strong spirit and. um, The rejection of perfectionism. In our churches and in our ministries and in our own hearts would um, be open to using it as a conversation starter with their own congregations, because that's really where it's at. It's finding our way back to each other. Like you said, we've been in isolation. We've got to find our way back to each other um, ideologically, spiritually, like socially, emotionally and i don't think we can do that if it is a top down i'm going to give you the path to come back to church and i'm going to try to like win you back with um with lures and like look at all this good stuff i think that there is going to have to be an element of coming on people coming on their terms and their terms might be i, I need an apology <laughs> I need repentance. I need to see repentance. I think that I would so many people would love to see their pastors be open and not defensive about the conversations of hurt and disgust and doubt and just starting this different conversation. That's going to feel like a lot of. Um, I don't know. It's going to feel like a lot. My, my, In my first ministry job, I made a huge mistake and I basically, a student entrusted me with a secret and I told the secret to another person in the ministry, like another adult, but still it was someone she, you know, I was supposed to, it was a mistake. And she was angry and she wanted to sit me down and talk to me. And I asked my boss, who was the campus pastor, do I just... Like, how do I guide her back and, like, help her be reconciled? And he said, I think you're just going to have to sit there and let her take her swings because you've earned them. And I don't think that you guiding her to where you think she needs to be really needs to be your main agenda right now. I think you hearing her and reconciling yourself needs you know reconciling y'all's relationship but also really really owning what you did and seeing the pain that it caused is important for you and so I think that I just I hope I hope pastors are there I hope that their God is big enough and that their love is deep like their feeling of being loved by Jesus is deep enough that those conversations can happen and I there's there's discussion questions and stuff in the book and my whole goal is that those discussion questions would be conversations that people are having together and I would I think so many people would be honored and blessed if their pastors were part of that conversation.
0: Our guest is Becca McNeil. The book is Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down. You can stay connected with Becca at beccamcneil.com. Becca, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for challenging us to turn the bitter rejection of the old into a hopeful embrace of uncertainty in the new as we revive our faith.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.